Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you a new friend of mine, Claudia Mullenweg. She is the Natural Vision Improvement Coach and founder and CEO of Holistic Vision. Now, for those of you like me who uh, are experiencing both through aging and those of us spending a lot more time in front of our screens, this is a really important conversation to have. So thank you and welcome, Claudia. Hi, Heidi. I'm super excited to be here. So tell us a little bit more about what is Holistic Vision and how did you come to this place? So the method I'm teaching is called Naturally Clear Vision Method. And I had glasses, right? So it's often our own journey. I got glasses at age three and I really struggled with glasses. I got bullied and teased. I was born in the early 60s. Over time, I realized that when I was stressed, not so much as a kid, but as I grew up, when I was stressed out and when I felt disconnected from the world, that my vision would get worse. And when I felt happier and more relaxed and more connected to the world, I felt that my vision got better. And so I got more and more interested in this and found out about Bates' method, which is the foundation of what I teach. Yeah, so I got rid of my glasses. Um, I finally got rid of them in my early 40s. And it's been a life changer. That's amazing to me. I've sort of gone through phases of my life where certainly probably during peak periods of stress where I've needed glasses more. But for me, a new experience has been, I have a daughter who has terrible vision. I mean, she's basically blind without glasses. Thanks to technology, she's able to, you know, have contacts now, which was a big improvement for her. So I'd love to hear more about that. She inherited my husband's vision. He was born, had his glasses like my daughter, first at 18 months and, you know, the big thick Coke bottle glasses. But then he had replacement surgery of his actual lenses because he had glaucoma. So, I mean, there's just so many interesting things to that, but obviously there's so many levels of different parts of vision that we don't even really think about. We think about, yes, those people that, you know, that have had that from birth. And then there's others of us that through our life experience or through changes, our vision changes. Can you talk a little bit about the difference there? This is a really great question. And I love this question. So, when all babies are farsighted. So babies actually have to learn. Farsighted means that you can see the distance well, but the near point is challenging because it's much more work for the eyes to kind of cross. When you think of the near point, you know, if you look at a finger and you bring it closer to your nose, your eyes have to cross. The inner eye muscles of the inner have to bring the eyes together. The lens gets thicker. So there's a lot more work involved. And so babies need to learn that. And when I got my glasses, I had a strabismus, meaning my right eye was going in. So when kids get glasses at, let's say, 18 months, it's usually for farsightedness because their brain, um, and that's the thing that I also want to mention, the brain is the driver of your vision. So maybe there's some issues in the brain going on or some, you know, left, right side hemisphere issues. So that's usually when kids get glasses at like 18 months. And that is really could be more of a genetic or whatever things happen in pregnancy kind of problem. And then children that get glasses at, you know, like elementary school or middle school or whatever, there's usually something called adverse childhood events. And it doesn't have to be this big trauma, but something where the nervous system 
doesn't feel like you're safe. Like you really want to blur the world kind of because, you know, maybe you were bullied or maybe you were teased or maybe your teacher was mean, maybe somebody in your family died. And for some reason you felt like something wasn't safe. And so initially this is called pseudomyopia. So that child is not really nearsighted. But then usually the teacher is like, okay, tells the parents, you know, that your child cannot read the blackboard and, and sends them to the eye doctor. And then that gets kind of manifested. And they did lots of animal experiments to kind of solidify the theory that it wasn't really myopia. Because I, I don't want to go too much into that, but really quick. So they did animal experiments with uh, chickens, with frogs, with monkeys, where they put plus and minus lenses. So minus lenses are for nearsightedness when you cancel the distance. And plus lenses are for those that are struggling with the near point. And the chickens that have the minus lenses, their eyeballs grew longer, which you have with myopia. And the ones that got the plus lenses, their eyeballs grew shorter, so that they could still see clearly. And when they took those off, the eyeball went back to its normal shape. So that's why glasses can, they can really help, you know, especially with strabismus, what I had with like a squint or, but they can also actually manifest a problem that's really more where a psychologist or you know, other help could actually be better than glasses. Does that make sense? Like- it, it absolutely does. And when I think about the periods in my life that have been the most stressful, those are the periods where I've ended up going back to wearing glasses. So, and I've always thought it was strange. How come I don't always need glasses? There's certainly periods where in my life where I'm like, I can't see without them. And it totally makes sense. Now, you, you've, you've answered that for me. So it's fascinating. You touched on something really quick. Vision varies for everyone. Mm-hmm. So even if I had 2010, and my vision is usually 2010, 2015, but when I'm stressed, when I divorced, you know, when I, like, my vision gets worse too. So it's not like, you know, you have this perfect state and that never changes. Because eyes are, you know, vision happens in the brain. 90% is in the brain. And, the, you know, everything that affects your body affects your vision and your mind, obviously. So what are some of the things that we, that well, that might be triggers, but also that we, that we can control in some way? I mean, therapy is obviously something that can help when there's emotional distress, but what are some of the things that you recommend for your clients that can help them particularly relieve those things that might be causing issues with our vision? So good vision is based on relaxation. So when, and, you know, without going into too much anatomy, but we have the sympathetic nervous system state, the fight or flight, and we have the rest and digest, which is the relaxation state. So when we have to be stressed for danger or performance, we usually want to come down into relaxation state really fast. However, a lot of people nowadays are in that constant stress mode. And it's that anxiety that holds tension, that holds grip, you know, where you make an effort. So one of the things, and I loved how you said that we can control. So there are several things we can control. We can control our breath, right? We can do breath practices like belly breathing, which creates relaxation or longer exhales. We can also do blinking is very important. So blinking Mm. is preventing staring. So staring, you know, like when you lock your eyes into one place, creates blur. And blinking, we do automatically like breathing, but we can also blink more or like practice blinking, right? So an easy, effortless kind of butterfly blink. So those are two things that you can do to actually improve your vision by simply blinking and breathing in a relaxed way and being aware. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting you say the staring piece because, you know, we talked a little bit in the green room about this, but 
obviously we're in this place right now where people are spending a lot of time looking at screens and they're, you know, they're staring and that, you know, or they're looking at Zoom and they can see themselves. And so they notice when they blink and they're very self-conscious of the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm blinking. So I got to keep my eyes looking big and looking awake. And that must be a very big stressor for your eyes and for your brain. Are there some things that we can do to mediate? Do you mean that we don't blink enough or that we are just the staring where you are unconsciously like, you know, staring? Or are you more when you look at yourself and you want to have your eyes big and kind of? Well, I think it's what I guess my question is more some of the things that we can do to whether it's, you know, remembering to blink and being conscious of that and being aware that we shouldn't stare. But also, I mean, for example, we talked about earlier, I use blue blocker glasses a lot of times with my eyes feeling strained. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a corrective lens in my blue blocker, so they're not very good when I'm doing things that I need to write. But when I'm just looking, I find that they sort of alleviate some of the stress. But, you know, what are some of the things that we can be mindful of and maybe even share with our families? Because a lot of our kids are now particularly spending too much time in front of their screens because that's their delivery mechanism for their homework and for connecting with their friends. What are the, some of the things that you might, maybe even some exercises that, that can help you feel like relieve that muscle or relieve that stress? That's a great question. That's definitely exercises. I actually prefer relaxercises. So to remind yourself to stay relaxed. So first of all, our eyes, like I said earlier, looking at the near point is more effort. It's simply more physical effort. So looking up, and you might have heard this before, but looking up frequently and not getting closer and closer and closer. So I have my computer. I just have to move my eyes an inch above the top and I look into my backyard, mm. right? So placing your computer or your laptop in a way where it's easy to look up and not, you know, you don't have to get up and get out of the room. So make it easy mm -hmm. to frequently shift your gaze. That's one thing. Another aspect, and this is based on the anatomy of the eye, we have a very, very small spot of perfect clarity in the phobia. And knowing, understanding that the area of perfect clarity is very small and the rest is near periphery, middle periphery, and far periphery, you, which means you're moving your eyes, you're moving your attention. Think more of moving your attention on this, like say the computer screen, right? When you look at the top left corner, You only see that clearly. Everything else you see in your periphery, right? But you do not see that clearly. So moving the eyes and, again, moving the attention versus trying to see this whole screen clear, which is impossible. It's anatomically impossible. And moving in another thing I notice every child that starts reading, they automatically move their head, right? When they're reading, they move their head side to side. And then we tell them, don't move your head, just move your eyes. And that actually causes astigmatism. So we do want to move the head. We want to move the head around, not just the eyes by themselves. That's such an interesting thing. I mean, I think about even for myself, you know, you're reading in bed, for example, you've got sort of a pillow that's supporting your head and holding it in a fixed position. So that you're saying that that's not a good thing. We should actually. No, no, it's not. Really I move. mean, you're not like, you don't want to do crazy, like swinging movements, right? But Your vision is best, and everybody can test that. Your vision is best when you look straight ahead. When you look, keep your head looking straight ahead and then move your eyes all the way to the left. Your vision, or to the right, or up and down. Your vision is best when your eye is in the center, your pupil is in the center of your eye. So you do want to move, you know, wherever you look. When you look, let's say you're looking up, right? There's a bird or there's a plane up above you. 
you want to you move your head up. You don't just shift your eyes up. So this is really important. And this was actually an optometrist that did this research in the 80s. And he found, for instance, that all orchestra musicians, let's say a violinist, right? They have their head tilted, but the sheet music is straight. Mm-hmm. So they have an angle of astigmatism exactly in that angle. So if you do repetitive movements, and I'm talking about repetitive, right? Not once in a while, right? If you do the same repetitive movements all the time, you will develop an astigmatism in that exact axis where you only move your eyes. That's fascinating. That's so interesting. I wonder, I mean, one of the things that we've been hearing a lot about in terms of digital well-being and sort of the relation to the physical objects that we use for technology, the devices, in that there's a lot of issues with chronic back pain and what they're calling tech neck, which obviously it's this tilted down posture where they're looking down at a screen and they're not moving their head at all because they're looking at a tiny little screen. Are there implications there in terms of vision because you're having certain strains on your neck? Because obviously that's the supporting piece that holds, if I understand it correctly, your your vision, actually, the part of your brain that manages your, your vision is right in the back of your head, which is where that tension point is. I, you're asking the best question. Like, <laughs> I really love your questions. Yes. So the neck is obviously the bottleneck to the brain, right? Vision is in the brain. And like you said, the visual cortex, what we see is actually in the back of your head. And all the vertebrae, all, and any tension in your neck and that forward head posture, with every inch forward you add, it's like 10 to 12 pounds of you, right? Of your weight of the head. So you add that load to your neck with every inch you, you hunch forward. And the C2 vertebrae is actually connected to the optic nerve the fascia. So any posture, you know, like you said, tech neck, all these postural problems that we have nowadays will contribute to vision problems, um, not just to astigmatism, but definitely to astigmatism. And one other thing I want to say about that is for those that are a little older and start wearing progressive lenses or bifocals, it used to be bifocals and now it's very focused or progressives, those glasses cause actually postural problems because they assume when you're looking straight ahead, that you're looking in the distance. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking down, that you're reading. However, so people work at the computer, they have those glasses on, and you can always tell them by, they have their chin kind of tilted up to look through the lower part of the lens because the computer is two feet away, not 20 feet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates astigmatism and in a, in a kind of an oblique angle. And um, when you're looking down, you might be hiking or going down a flight of stairs, so the strength is way too much, like, you know, the, the correction for the near point at that point, because you're not reading at, you know, 16 inches, you're looking down at your feet when you walk down a flight of stairs. So, so you, I don't recommend those. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. My husband actually has those now that you know, I think he had his surgery, probably 15 years ago. And so, you know, there's different progressions in his eyes as well as as he's gotten older. So what are some of the things that, I mean, you talk about, obviously, breathing, relaxation, conscious, you know, being very conscious of your breath. What are some of the other things that we can think about really putting into our practice to improve our vision or at least to not deteriorate further than we already have? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you have a whole process and a, a system for doing that. Absolutely. So one of the things that I, that's really important is actual light so a lot of people are light sensitive and the sunlight has become this evil devil right 
And when in fact we need sunlight, so your cone cells, and I, without going too much into anatomy, but the cone cells are the ones that the, you, in the fovea where you see the best, you only have cone cells. And those produce color vision and clarity. And then at the outer edges, you only have rod cells, which uh, only see black and white, they see movement, and those are the cells that give you night vision, right? So the cone cells actually need light to function, and the sunlight has a full spectrum of all the colors. And the sunlight is actually really good for the eyes, and they have been doing studies in Great Britain and Australia with children, and they found that children that spend two or more hours outside playing outside have a way lower rate of nearsightedness than those children, and especially in Asia, right, where it's up to 90% or higher is the rate of nearsightedness in children in Asia. Um, and they even noticed that Chinese children growing up in Australia or places where there's more sunlight have about 20% of nearsightedness, whereas in China, in the cities, it's now 80% or higher. So sunlight, and you know, there is exceptions. There's certain eye diseases if you take certain medications, if your pupils don't contract, right? There are certain exceptions or extreme conditions like skiing and, and snow and, you know, I'm talking about our normal lives, not like extreme conditions and obviously not with sudden eye diseases. But our pupils are built in sunglasses, right? When you put sunglasses on, the pupils actually open up behind the sunglasses. So, and then what happens, you lose the ability to contract your, in, you know, with a healthy eye, the second you shine a bright light into the eye, the pupils contract really quick. And when that light is gone, like say night driving with headlights, and then that once that car has passed, the pupils open up really fast. And I suffered from that problem. I couldn't drive at night because my I was so, so light sensitive. I wore sunglasses all the time, inside on computers, right? So, so this is something I recommend. Instead, wear a cap or a hat, and usually it's just the angle of the sun, right? So this is something I recommend, doing less sunglasses than only using them in extreme conditions. That's fascinating. I don't know whether this is a myth, but, you know, being blue-eyed, I think I've always been told that that's why my eyes are so sensitive to the light. So I wear sunglasses all of the time, but I also do struggle with night driving. And so I'm going to practice that one because I've recently taken into a new habit of wearing a cap when I go for a hike. So I will try taking the sunglasses off when I wear the cap. You can do it as a transition because if you are like, I live in Los Angeles, so it's really bright sun here. There's a practice called sunning where you just face the sun with your closed eyes and you turn your head side to side very slowly. It's very relaxing. And you notice how it's brighter when you're in the middle and then that eye that where you turn to the side is in the shade. So this is a very gentle practice that you can do. Initially, just closed eyes and then you open the eyes on the side. So you, you slowly want to get used to that, right? It might be, especially if you're super light sensitive, you don't just want to go out in the Southern California sun, especially, and right? Yeah. But I, there is a connection to especially nearsightedness and astigmatism with light sensitivity. So you need to reduce the light sensitivity to reduce the astigmatism and the nearsightedness. I'm definitely going to try that. That's fascinating. When the sun comes back, we seem to be getting a lot of rain in San Francisco, which is you know, along with all this craziness, we've got wacky weather, go with it. So I also get seasonal affective disorder. So for me, that vitamin D is absolutely critical. So I try to be out in the sun a lot, but I do generally wear sunglasses. So I'm going to try that sunning. I like that idea. I think it would probably help my vitamin D deficiency as well. So I would love to 
hear a little bit more as we come into the latter half of the show. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your story and sort of where you came from. So you're in LA now, but with you have this beautiful German name. So tell us a little bit about your story, how you got here, and what sort of brought you into working in this space. Yeah, like I said before, my story was I got my first pair of glasses at age three. I was farsighted. Again, babies are all born farsighted. So I had that challenge. My right eye was always going in. So if your eyes are not aligned and not working together, you don't have really good depth perception, right? So that only works with two eyes working together. And I was three years old. I didn't go to kindergarten. And in school, I got bullied and teased, like I said. And the only other kid in my class that had glasses was like the professor. Like he was the smart kid. I was not. And I was, I got more and more shy. I really got super introverted and I really didn't want to connect with the world. I felt like scared because everybody would laugh at me or if I said the wrong thing, I disconnected. And as I got got into my teenage years, I remember going, I was like 14 and I went out on a disco, right? Back then in the seventies. And I didn't wear my glasses. My vision was good enough to see, like, I couldn't really see the near point, but I was okay, like, when it comes to, like, going out and and I wasn't driving myself, so I would have needed them for driving. And a boy told me, you have beautiful eyes. Mm. And that was the first time where I'm like, I have beautiful eyes. Like, I was always teased. My vision was always, like, my problem, right? Like, it was always the bad thing was, was my vision. And I realized... Like the first time I felt like this is, I need to get rid of these glasses. So I explored, I did find a book, like in a bookstore in Hamburg, Germany, where I grew up about this method. And I started practicing this and I noticed how this works. And I was actually able to get rid of my glasses. So in my twenties, I went to art school. I was very visual. I got, I was actually able to get rid of my glasses for a while. And then in my 30s, I married. I married a German guy, I moved to LA. I always wanted to be somewhere else. I really wasn't happy in Germany anymore. And our marriage was really rocky. And as it fell apart, my vision tanked again. So mm-hmm. I was back in glasses. And uh, I we divorced. We eventually divorced. I was a single mom of two daughters. Really stressful life. Like no sleep. Like all the bad habits, right? Didn't really have time to eat. Stressful job. And I remember particularly one night I went out. So I had younger friends and they said, come on, you got to get out. you got to go start dating. Just have some fun. So I went out and I went and I just felt so like I was just, I had just turned 40 and I felt so disconnected from all these young, beautiful people in LA. And, you know, I, I just, I couldn't, I felt really like this barrier, the glasses and I just felt old. I just felt old and undesirable. And again, this feeling of like, I'm not good. I'm like, nobody wants me. I like, you know, I wasn't bullied, but I felt that like nobody wants me. You bullied yourself. Yeah. And then I, anyway, I drove home and I got lost. And that was the old days of the Thomas Guide. If you know Los Angeles with mm-hmm. the Thomas Guide teeny map, I couldn't, I got lost. I put that little light on. I couldn't read the map. And long story short, I somehow made it home. And when I took the glasses off, my vision was so bad, like worse than ever before because of all that stress. And I'm like, I have this book, like, I need to find, I need to figure, I know I can do this. I know about this. I know you can improve your vision. And that's when I got serious and uh, hired a teacher, a coach to help me. And then eventually did the teacher training. And yeah, I made it my mission now to help others because it changed my life. 
Well, you do have beautiful eyes, and I'm so glad that we can see them because, and you certainly don't look like an old woman, and you, you've just, you know, you really shine. And I'm so thankful that you're doing the work that you're doing because I think it's really, really important. And, you know, I think we're only going to see more of this, particularly in the near term. We're really coming into a time where we're going to have a mental health crisis. And a lot of that is going to lead to, you know, physical problems like poor vision and, It's great to know that there's people out there like you that are doing the good work to help solve that part of the problem. So thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, Thank you for having me and sharing my message. Absolutely. So for folks who are interested in learning more about your process and learning about how you work, how can they find you? So I have a website called myholisticvision.com. It's my blog. There's a free gift. When you go to that website, there's a little pop-up and there's a gift called 10 Habits for Healthy and Happy Eyes. And that gives you 10 strategies. Like it explains the sunning we talked about. It explains the posture, the astigmatism connection and how you can rest your eyes. It just gives you 10 really good habits. Uh, Somebody said that's almost like a mini course. So it's a really valuable, it's not just like two paragraphs. It gives you a lot of information. I also have a Facebook group called See Clearly Without Glasses, where I give challenges and I give free advice. And it's a really great community. So those are two really good places where you can find me. Thank you so much. And uh, for those of you who are driving, which hopefully no one is driving because we're supposed to all be in quarantine right now. But if you are driving, please don't try to write all that down. Don't worry. It will be in the show notes and you can find the show notes anywhere that this podcast is streaming. Thank you so much for joining us today, Claudia. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you, Digital Selfers, for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking your time to join us and listen to the many different stories about how we can improve our digital well-being and humanity. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share with your friends so more people can hear about what we have to share. It's been a joy having you today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.